this Wednesday for most of us is Halloween, but a lot of Christians are disturbed by the way that Halloween seems to celebrate evil. Many Protestants choose to celebrate Reformation Day instead. While we respect the desire to have fun without celebrating evil, we find Reformation Day to be unwittingly ironic. And here's why. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, joined today by my regular co-host, Joe Heschmeyer, who is back from a honeymoon and a wedding and all that exciting things. It's great to be back. <laughs> Welcome back home. Thanks, Chloe. So speaking of celebrations, for most Americans, when this episode comes out, we'll be prepping for Halloween. So all the kids will be getting their costumes. If you're like me, you have bought a bag of chocolate that you have hidden away from yourself in hopes that no one shows up for trick-or-treating so that you can eat it all. But for some Protestants, Wednesday is Reformation Day, and it's a day to commemorate October 31st, 1517, when Luther allegedly posted the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, sparking the Protestant Reformation. Today, um, we want to kind of commemorate this ironically. Uh, This is something I've been doing on my blog for Mm -hmm. many years. So back in 2011, I started posting what I called Reformation Day irony. So we want to go through today and look at seven of maybe the biggest ironies of celebrating Reformation Day. So, I mean, obviously not all Protestants do this, but for those who do it, it's worth taking a closer look at does this make any sense or are they kind of undermining themselves? So the first irony that we're going to be talking about today is that some Protestants celebrate Reformation Day with graven images. So this was actually the kind of strange little tidbit that started this whole Reformation Day ironies series back in 2011. I was reading an article that was talking about how certain Protestants were making basically jack-o'-lanterns, but because they didn't want anything Halloween-ish, these jack-o'-lanterns had things like John Calvin's face. And if you know anything about John Calvin and how opposed he was to graven images, Mm -hmm. it's just a really funny idea. Making a graven image of someone who is a famous iconoclast, uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It would be like making a a jack-o'-lantern with Muhammad's face or something. Like, it you know, that's not the way the guy would want to be honored. Right. These are impressive jack-o'-lanterns, though. Like, they're significantly better than the jack-o'-lanterns that I create. So at least they're recognizably John <laughs> Calvin or Martin Luther. So they got that going for him. Yeah, maybe when you're that good at making jack-o'-lanterns, you have to find an outlet for it. <laughs> but awesome. so the reason it's ironic, mm-hmm. uh, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with John Calvin and his teachings, in his most famous work, which is called Institutes of Christian Religion, in Book 1, Chapter 11, he attacks Catholicism, Uh, for having what he calls graven images. Now, that's a biblical phrase. It's a pretty literal rendering of the Hebrew word that we would normally talk of about, like, idol. Uh, It's it's translated as graven image. So it's something carved that you worship. Well, Calvin claimed that all of the different statues of saints and Mary and everything else in the church, even the statues of Jesus, well, these are idols, these are graven images, and and it's wrong. And so he says in, in Book 1, Chapter 11, it is therefore mere infatuation, to attempt to defend images of God and the saints by the examples of the cherubim. So that's a reference to Exodus 25. If you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark has these two beautiful carved statues of angels Mm -hmm. that are depicted worshiping uh, the Lord in, in the Ark. So the obvious Catholic response to Calvin and other what are called iconoclasts, people who are against images, 
is, well, look, images are at various points commanded in Scripture, religious images. So, yes, God prohibits idolatry, but in the same book, he says you got to make these images of these angels. So, clearly, you can't just say every statue or even every statue for religious purposes Mm -hmm. is automatically an idol. And so Calvin tries to say, well, it doesn't count. You know, it's... Those are sort of special circumstances. They're not praying to the angel. The angels aren't like in front of them when they're kneeling and they're like eh, kind of accoutrement, you know, they're mm-hmm. they're over on the sides. So he tries to explain why this seemingly pretty obvious uh, disproof of his theory doesn't actually disprove his theory. So then through Calvin's life, he's overseeing kind of the destruction of graven images like paintings or statues and things like that. Right. And I mean, we would obviously say they're not really graven images that it Properly speaking, a graven image in the biblical sense is an idol. It's something that you're worshiping. It's not just any carved thing. But reformers are really taking it very literally to mean any carved image. Any, But not obviously, they don't even take it literally themselves because they also destroy painted images. Right. Which aren't literally graven, graven. images. Mm-hmm. Good point. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they have this massive kind of destruction of beautiful religious art mm-hmm. and uh, the bodies of the saints are destroyed. So, for example, in southern France... St. Irenaeus of Lyon, yeah. his body is taken and destroyed and thrown into the river. Holy cow. This is the guy who brought Christianity to southern France, and this is how he was repaid. Yeah. Uh, it was. I mean, it was just this insane kind of anti-image kind of push. Well, this is obviously uh, ironic when you're commemorating that mm-hmm. with a bunch of images. And it's not just this jack-o'-lantern either. There's also what's called the Reformation Wall in Geneva, and it's fairly famous it's a four of the major reformers, Calvin, Beza, Farrell, and Knox. And so it's these giant, larger-than-live uh, religious images. I mean, that's what they are. These are images right. commemorating people for their contribution to the religion of the area. And so it would be no different than putting up an image of St. Augustine or mm-hmm. of the Apostles. Or, you know, but it, there's, a, there's obviously a pretty deep irony there. Right, right. And if those, the, if that wall was of the Apostles or of Augustine and it was around during the time that Calvin is overseeing that, it's probably going to be something that he would have desecrated or destroyed. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And so sometimes when I point this irony out, I'll have Protestants tell me, well, it's different because the Reformation wall isn't inside of a church. And so people aren't going to be tempted to worship it. Or, or, you know, and I think that's kind of a silly... Uh, special pleading for a few reasons. First of all, if you look at like Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to have himself worship, that yeah. wasn't inside of a church. Like when you look at real idolatry, right? it's not usually being done inside of a church. Uh, but moreover, this notion that people are going to just be too smart to fall into idolatry, they're not going to be tempted to worship a pumpkin, that sort of thing. Uh, that's, I think, a reasonable kind of objection. But the only problem with it is John Calvin doesn't think it's a reasonable objection. So going back to Institutes, he says, Hence, again, it is obvious that the defenders of images resort to a paltry quibbling evasion when they pretend that the Jews were forbidden to use them, images, Mm -hmm. on account of their proneness to superstition. As if a prohibition which the Lord founds on his own eternal essences and the uniform course of nature could be restricted to a single nation. End quote. In other words, it's not, says Calvin, that you can't have graven images if you're a superstitious people, if you're prone to superstition. It's an eternal kind of law. So you can't say, we are smarter than that. We're less superstitious. He would say, not good enough. Eternal law says you can't have graven images. So 
there it is. That's the first irony. You're engraving images of men who hated engraved images. Yeah, I think it's so important when you're celebrating holidays to know the origin of them or like the background story behind them. So on that same thread, let's talk about another holiday with a second irony, which is that a Reformation Day is everything that some evangelicals hate about Christmas. Yeah. So what do we mean by that? If you talk to, I mean, again, this isn't all Protestants, right. but there are certain evangelicals who won't celebrate Christmas and their reason for it is that they believe it's warmed over Babylonian paganism. There is a really influential book by Alexander Hislop from the 19th century called The Two Babylons, which is filled with just nonsense mm -hmm. about the alleged connections between various elements of Christianity and how these were all taken from paganism. So John MacArthur is a, a relatively mainstream evangelical figure, and he actually is okay with Christmas, but he acknowledges that it has a pagan origin, or so he thinks. Right. So he says it originally celebrated evil spirits. Catholics tried to turn it into a Christian holiday, but many of the original symbols, the Christmas tree, the holly, the mistletoe, remain, and so on. Well, because of that, a lot of people listen to that same kind of argument MacArthur is making and saying, okay, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas at all because it's just, it's a pagan holiday, it's a pagan day, we don't want to celebrate paganism, right? So that's... I mean, it's a debatable theory. A lot of the history behind it is actually really wrong. Right. But that's their, their position. But then when they turn around, many of these same exact people want to celebrate Reformation Day. And their reason is, let's Christianize Halloween. <laughs> like, their reason is, yeah. we don't want to celebrate what they believe, again, wrongly, is a pagan holiday, Halloween, which is actually All Hallows' Eve. It's the Eve of All Saints' Day. It's a Catholic holiday. Right. But I guess the if you're prone time. to seeing Catholics as pagans or if you think any depiction of evil is it a celebration of evil i can understand why they don't know the history of either of these holidays but mm -hmm. the, the idea is when they get to christmas they say wrongly this was a pagan holiday we can't just christianize it we have to reject it when they get to halloween they say this is a pagan holiday we have to christianize it let's turn it into reformation day that's a big difference within a couple months of right. celebration. And they, they keep the symbols, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. another, you know, they keep the pumpkins. They keep all of these kind of harvesty themes. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll even keep, like, dressing up. They'll just dress up as figures. I, I mean, I kid you not, you have people dressing up as Martin Luther and John Calvin. Yeah. So it's, it really is just doing exactly what they said you couldn't do uh, when the subject was Christmas. So the next time evangelicals claim that Christmas is a warmed-over pagan holiday, ask them about Reformation Day. Because many of the same people who denounce Christmas for allegedly Christianizing a pagan festival, they will in turn embrace Reformation Day for attempting to do the exact same thing. So the third irony that we're going to look at is to avoid celebrating evil, Reformation Day actually celebrates evil. What do we mean by that? Well, what are the reasons against celebrating Halloween? It's that it, it sometimes involves too much, like, celebrating evil. Like, mm -hmm. you'll have people who really do kind of embrace something very dark, even satanic, and they'll go around rather than mocking it, which is, I think, more of the origin of the holiday, or acknowledging it, acknowledging the reality of evil, mm -hmm. they'll sort of idealize or embrace or glamorize evil. And so, understandably, a lot of conservative Protestants, even a lot of Catholics, are uncomfortable with Halloween. And they don't want to celebrate. That's totally legitimate. It's an issue on which we uh, can certainly find common ground. But to replace it <laughs> with Reformation Day, it really puts you out of the frying pan into the fire. Because you're talking about celebrating a day in which Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
Now, this is an event that probably didn't happen, Mm -hmm. by the way, but that's a whole other discussion. But no Protestant actually accepts all 95 theses. We can get much more into that in the next one. So instead of commemorating the actual theses, they're, they're commemorating what it represents. They're commemorating the Reformation. They're commemorating this break. But if you look at it from a Christian perspective, Jesus calls in John 17, 20 to 23, he calls for all Christians to be one. And so to commemorate Christian divorce, to celebrate a divorce day, is tremendously scandalous. It's actually commemorating evil in no uncertain terms. Like it's, it's not just an acknowledgement. You're celebrating a thing that shouldn't be celebrated. This is the same distinction we would say with evil spirits. You know, like yeah. It's one thing to depict, to acknowledge, to remember, and to mock uh, the forces of evil. It's quite another thing to celebrate them. It's one thing to commemorate or acknowledge that the Reformation happened, but to celebrate it is uh, gravely immoral. If, if you take what Christ says seriously about the need for all Christians to be one. All right. It's like you can celebrate Halloween without celebrating evil, but it doesn't seem that you can celebrate Protestant Reformation Day without really embracing that divide. Right. I mean, to be sure, it's possible to say the reformers in many cases seem to have been motivated by a love of the gospel or by Mm -hmm. a good idea or whatever. But at the end of the day, the defining feature of the Reformation is the split within Christendom uh, between Catholics and Protestants, and then between Protestants and Protestants and Protestants and Right, Protestants. and so on and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just down. not something to be celebrated or commemorated in a positive way. So then let's dig into a little bit more about those 95 theses. So the, the fourth irony is that Reformation Day celebrates a document that really damns Protestants. That sounds like an overstatement, <laughs> yeah. right? Like people who have never read the 95 theses are probably like, oh, come on. Right. Like maybe it disagrees. But no, remember that while the whole Wittenberg door event is probably legendary, it's not recorded in the life of Luther, Mm -mm. the 95 theses themselves, that Luther did write 95 sort of propositions to be debated. That's very real. And you have to remember that at the time, he's an Augustinian monk Mm -hmm. who doesn't think of himself initially as starting a new religion. And so this document, at the end of the day, is more Catholic than it is Protestant. It's famously, you know, the most famous portion is a part denouncing the sale of indulgences. Mm -hmm. And on that point, Catholics and Protestants actually agree. The Council of Trent agreed with Martin Luther Mm -hmm. that it's immoral to sell indulgences. But interestingly, Luther agreed with the Catholic Church that indulgences were valid, at least in some cases. So he said they were valid against canonical penalties, but not the penalty of purgatory. What's fascinating about that is that Protestants can't say, oh, he's right, that... You yeah. can't use an indulgence to get out of purgatory without, you know, tacitly conceding purgatory exists. exists. So all in all, it's a fairly Catholic um, document. You know, he refers in the document to the priests as God's vicars. He affirms the merits of Christ and the saints. He talks about Mary's the mother of God. And there's one part in there in which there's an issuance of damnation, what's called an anathema clause. And it's in Canon 71 in which Luther says... He who speaks against the truth of apostolic pardons, let him be anathema and accursed. What is an apostolic pardon? Uh, Catholic priests tend to know what this is, but non-priests, even Catholics, don't know what it is. So I want to turn to a Protestant source here. This is Dr. Andrew Wasky, who is a professor at Dalton State. He explains that it's an indulgence given by a priest for the remission from sins, or the releasing of guilt. It's removing the temporal punishments due to sin. It doesn't actually absolve you from sin. 
It's specifically given to those who are on their deathbed. It's a sort of get out of purgatory mm. pardon. Mm-hmm. So Luther is saying no one can deny the truth of apostolic uh, pardons. And if they, if they do deny it, we'll let them be damned. And so the only people that's going to be applying to right. are Protestants. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, every Protestant denomination rejects apostolic pardons because they reject purgatory and they reject indulgences, and the whole thing doesn't make sense to them. Right. So they're celebrating on Reformation Day a document telling them to go to hell. Oh, yeah. Well, when you look at it that way, <laughs> it doesn't make you want to celebrate it as much as a Protestant. And then like 501 years later, there's the celebration of a legendary, probably never happened event that, because it's legendary, probably couldn't have kickstarted a Reformation. And it's full of very Catholic thoughts and ideas. Right. The document itself isn't something that I think Protestants would want to really embrace. Right. I mean, and there's a reason, too, that we have a slew of reformers that come after Martin Luther who take Martin Luther's ideas and continue to sort through them. And we end up with all the different sects of Protestantism that we have. Right. No, I mean, even even the most fanatical Lutheran doesn't Mm -hmm. agree with everything Luther said. And so no one actually thinks Luther was right. People just have different levels of how wrong he was. Right. So that brings us to the fifth irony, which is that Reformation Day, in all reality, celebrates the failure of the Reformation. Yeah. So if you've just heard the first four ironies, and especially the focus in the last two about the 95 Theses, you might be tempted if you're a Protestant to say, well, that's not the point. Luther's 95 Theses may have been wrong, but they opened the floodgates of the Reformation. I mean, it's not 95 Theses Day, it's Reformation Day, understandably. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, Reformation Day is still misnamed, because despite its name, it celebrates a split from Catholicism, not Reformation within the Catholic Church. Now, Reformation within the Catholic Church, a lot of people don't know this. Movements had already begun, were already being done in earnest prior to Luther. Germany wasn't particularly affected by this. It was one of the more corrupt parts of the church then. Mm -hmm. But in the early 1500s, we see the Fifth Lateran Council talking about the need for reform. So the idea that reform was necessary is something Catholics and Protestants agreed on and that I think we see those reform movements continuing. Now, there's a big historical debate about whether or not you would really get the Council of Trent without Luther. But the Council of Trent in the late 1500s Like we mentioned a second ago, it forbids the sale of indulgences. It restricts the use of them. And it does a lot of the things Luther was hoping would happen. But the ship has already sailed Mm -hmm. for Luther in a lot of ways. Because remember, at the outset, in 1517, Luther's goal isn't, I'm going to start a new branch of Christianity. I'm going to start a new religion. That's not his initial goal. In fact, he writes to the Pope when this controversy gets kind of heated And he swears his loyalty to the Pope and promises to abide whatever the Pope decrees. In the very early days, he thought, well, I'm going to make these points. I'm so sure of my arguments, they must be right. The Pope's going to see this, agree with me. I'm going to be vindicated on all points. Well, in fact, he wasn't vindicated on all points because on a lot of the issues, he was wrong. And Catholics and Protestants alike Mm -hmm. would agree with that now, that Luther had a lot of good insights and was wrong about a lot of things and had no real ability to tell which were his good and which were his bad positions. I mean, Luther himself changes his views on several things as he goes through his life. So when you point out these very Catholic-sounding positions of Luther, Protestants will often respond to say, well, later on he, he recanted of that. Okay, so even Luther doesn't agree with Luther. Yeah, that's a good point. No one thinks Luther is right in 1517 on everything that he's saying. Nobody does. 
And so unsurprisingly, the Pope doesn't simply accept this. He comes out with a decree contrary to Luther, and Luther breaks his promise and then breaks off and forms a new church. So it's almost a, it's a second definition of Reformation then. It's not a reform of the Catholic Church and the, the issues that did need reformed and the issues that in some ways, like you look at the saints, like Teresa of Avila is a celebrated doctor of the church and she's a major reformer, but she also stayed in the Catholic Church and reformed the Catholic Church, or at least when it comes to the Carmelite convents. But then you look at what Luther did and it's a reformation of right. the Right, he's trying to restart. Right. By the end of his life, at least. It's mm-hmm. clear that he's basically restarting Christianity in his own image and likeness rather than... Uh, seriously committing himself to the reform of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. There's some debate, actually, about how much uh, people in the 16th century thought this was going to just resolve itself within a few years. And it seems that a lot of them thought, okay, well, we're broken up now, there's a schism now, but it's going to heal, it's going to resolve, and one side or the other is going to come out on top. Mm-hmm. Because that had happened so many times right, in, in the, the past. past. Well, it didn't happen here. So as a reform movement of the Catholic Church, Luther's a failure. He's not a Francis of Assisi. He's not a Catherine of Siena. He's not a Teresa of Avila. Nope. There are a lot of great reformers of the church. Pope Gregory. Yeah. You know, um, the Cluniac monks in the 11th century have a tremendous influence in terms of the purification and reform of the church. So there are tons of major reform movements within the church. So we're not saying everything was hunky-dory, everything was peachy, there was no need for reform. We're saying Luther's attempt at reform failed because of his own inability to distinguish his good and bad arguments, Mm -hmm. his inability to receive correction, his inability to submit to lawful authorities. And so for a lot of reasons, and I mean, certainly there's fault on both sides. For a lot of reasons, the Reformation as a reform movement within the Catholic Church fails. And if it didn't fail, you wouldn't have Protestantism today. Because you have people who say, well, this isn't good enough. It isn't like all the Protestants say, okay, Trent is what we were looking for. Now we're ready to co- join the right. Catholic Church again. So if Luther had succeeded as a reformer, there would be no celebration of Reformation mm-hmm. Day. You just maybe have a St. Martin Luther on the calendar somewhere. Right. Someone who just, you know, because you don't, you don't show any of these other breaks because they didn't break off. Mm-hmm. They reformed within. So in that sense, um, this Reformation Day is misnamed. I like how in one of your blog posts you compare Luther to like Jefferson Davis or George Washington as a founder instead of a reformer, like kind of a revolutionary founder of a different denomination of Christianity. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can say, you know, well, there's something common, you know, and the, certainly the Confederates saw themselves as uh, drawing on the foundational principles of the American Republic. And certainly the American uh, revolutionaries saw themselves as drawing upon the Magna Carta and and British common law and the best parts of British tradition before them. But they were still revolutionaries, and they still broke away, and they started something different. You wouldn't say George Washington was a British reformer, that he reformed British civil society. No, he broke away from it. So whether you love that or hate that, that's not a reformation. It's a schism. And Luther actually acknowledges being a schismatic in in his writings. So in that sense... um, you're celebrating something that's very misnamed. You're really celebrating schism rather than reform. Yeah. Reformation Day has a better ring to it than schism day, though, so I don't blame them. For <laughs> it <doing> does. <laughs> but it only is being celebrated because it failed. Right. Exactly. So the sixth irony is that Reformation Day is man-made aggression protesting man-made aggression. So it's popular because it celebrates what's believed to be the triumph of truth 
over false man-made traditions, right? Like the reason people are celebrating Reformation Day is they say, okay, maybe the Catholic Church got off to a good start. Mm-hmm. Protestants are very differently minded on that subject. Right. Maybe it got off to a good start. But certainly, by the 16th century, you got in all of these different traditions that had sort of just been added on. Uh, Peter Kraft talks about, as a Protestant, how he viewed it as kind of barnacles on a ship. You know, that you get a few of them on the ship, no problem. But eventually, it starts to impede the ship's movement. But if the ship is out at sea long enough, it's going to accrue a lot of these. And that's more or less how a lot of Protestants view the Catholic Church now, or at least the Catholic Church in the 16th century. So there's a Protestant blog called The Road to 31. And it explains, we celebrate Reformation Day. Because it represents the reclaiming of one true gospel that had been lost in the Catholic Church and replaced with the traditions and teachings of men. Now, I want to make a theological point here before we jump into why this is ironic. This notion of traditions of men, it's a biblical phrase. Man-made tradition or traditions of men, or Christ will say your traditions. And some Protestants have the mentality that this means tradition is bad. But tradition is something, traditio, something passed on. And something passed on can be good or bad. And so there's what's called apostolic tradition. There's what Christ passed on to the apostles that the apostles pass on to those after them. And so St. Paul says, stand firm to the teachings which we have passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by epistle. So this is why, as Catholics, we say scripture, tradition by epistle, is important, it's sacred, it's infallible, it's inspired. But we also have this tradition by word of mouth, this absolute tradition that isn't initially written down. And how do we know what it is? Because the followers of the apostles wrote it down, because they live it out. Because if you look at what they're doing, how they're living, it's clear that they have uh, instructions and have observed a way of living that they're, they're acting out. Because truth isn't reducible uh, to just a series of documents. That the Christian gospel isn't reducible just to the books of the New Testament. And John talks about this in his gospel. That if you were to record everything Christ did, it would take more books than would fill the entire world. And so this whole notion of don't just do what I'm telling you in, in writing, but observe this way of life and live it. That's the whole notion of tradition. And understandably, for Protestants who aren't familiar with it, it's confusing because they're like, okay, so where is all of that written down? What, what is the right. bullet point list of all of the things that have to be done? But it's much more like a parent teaching a child how to be a parent. You know, like if you teach a daughter, here's what it is to be a mom. Or mm-hmm. if I teach a son, here's what it is to be a father. It's not going to just be, okay, here's a list. Right. It's also going to be lived experience. Mm-hmm. And then the building up of customs and everything else. So that's the whole notion of apostolic tradition. So I wanted to say that, that tradition itself is a neutral term. It's used both positively and negatively in the New Testament. When it's referring to traditions coming from God, it's used positively. When it's referring to traditions coming from men, it's more mixed. If those traditions coming from men are good, great. If they get in the way of the gospel, not great, then it's bad. A lot of Protestant Bibles don't reflect this kind of nuanced understanding of the word tradition because the exact same Greek word used is translated when it's used positively in the NIV. Uh-huh. It's translated as teachings. And when it's used negatively, it's translated as traditions. That's very sneaky. Like, choose and pick your own. Right. Your and own. so they would say, well, listen to the 
teachings passed on mm. to you rather than the traditions passed on. So if you get that, then you say, well, teachings are good, but traditions are bad. But right. that is something that the editors of the NIV are inventing, mm-hmm. not a distinction Jesus or St. Paul or any of the apostles are making. Their distinction is much more nuanced. The tradition, it depends who is it being passed on. A tradition is just a hand-me-down. Right. That requires critical thinking and Right, and knowing with. who it's being handed right. down from. Mm-hmm. Because the authority of it is going to be tied to the person it's handed down from. If God hands down some tradition to you, hold to that. If the Pharisees do, be a little more skeptical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then tying all back to Reformation Day is the irony is that it's celebrating a day that has been passed down through tradition that unfortunately was mostly legendary, if not all. Yeah. So, I mean, a a lot of the things being celebrated are literally man-made traditions. These are things that um, you're not basing this off of any eyewitness account of Martin Luther. You're basing this off of much later things. So Erwin Azerlo uh, in 1961 uh, went back and looked at this whole question of the nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church, and he concluded that it belonged to the realm of legend. As we mentioned before, it's not even recorded from the life of Luther. And so he never, he never mentions nailing anything to the door. There's no discussion in Wittenberg, no original of the printing can be found, etc., so it takes like this legendary bit of Lutheran hagiography. Hagiography, for those who may not be familiar with the term, is kind of the building up of legends around great figures, especially the saint. And so it's this kind of legendary uh, detail from his life that probably never happened, and plus some other false traditions. Like what's Luther's most famous line? At the Diet of Worms, he says, Here I stand, I can do no other. That's a later edition. It's not originally found in his document. The original accounts of it don't have him saying that. So the things actually being celebrated are literally man-made traditions that are just historically false, as far as we can tell, things that didn't really happen. So it's, I think, tremendously ironic that Reformation Day, to kind of reject man-made tradition, to reject you know, this slow accumulation of false uh, celebrations, is itself a false celebration of a bunch of things that probably never happened in the life of the guy being celebrated. Right, and you'd think that Luther, knowing what he was doing or the emphasis on the importance of what he was bringing up to the Pope would have recorded like on this day at this time, I nailed the 95 theses to the door. And then to have not even in his own, the person who supposedly nailed this document to the church door to not mention it at all is very telling. Right. That he never said he did this, that none of the people alive at the time Mm -hmm. record anywhere in his lifetime that he did this. His later followers saying, Oh yeah, this is how it happened. But that's not the kind of thing historians look upon as particularly credible. So that brings us to our last irony, which is the evangelicals decide that Halloween is pagan, but they've created something that's much more pagan in response. So I want to put a caveat at the beginning of this, which is that Reformation Day is celebrated differently uh, mm-hmm. by different types or sects or groups or whatever it promises. Uh, one of the major motivators for it, typically, as mentioned, is that it's an alternative to Halloween. So Brad Winstead has a column in the Christian Broadcasting Network. Uh, and which he he has kind of a, a longer explanation for why they do it. I want to give kind of a long quotation. I hope that's all right. He says, Even a cursory look at the origins of Halloween will reveal satanic rituals played out in trick-or-treating, jack-o'-lanterns, witches, ghosts, the dead, and on and on. If you've ever taken time to research any of these Halloween practices, you'll see the satanic background from the Celtic tribes of Scotland and Ireland. So should we retreat into the basements and attics of our homes? Turn out the lights and hope that our ghoulishly dressed neighborhood children will pass us by? And then he says, no, 
Instead, how about a Reformation Day party at your church? And he says, I know that many churches have a Harvest Day celebration or other such events where kids get dressed up as Bible characters and the fellowship hall is full of games to keep the kids off the street. But he says, let's take it even a step further and make it about our Reformation Day roots. And then he explains this whole, what turns out to be historically false thing about this being the day Martin Luther posts his 95 Theses. And so he says, why not have a celebration at church? where all can get dressed up as characters from the Reformation. I've dressed up as John Calvin, Martin Luther, a peasant, even John Tetzel, the salesman of those infamous indulgences. End quote. So, okay, why is that so amusingly ironic? First of all, Halloween doesn't have anything to do with the Celtic pagan festival that occurred on this date. There's a real historical question about whether such a festival ever existed. And if it did, if it was a response to Halloween. And so basically there's... <laughs> This whole question of whether any of his thing about, well, if you've ever studied the history. Well, no, actually, studying the history doesn't, doesn't lead to that conclusion. But for the sake of argument, let's just grant him. Let's, let's assume he was right. That October 31st was a pagan holiday that Christians papered over, but still preserved the core features of trick-or-treating and pumpkin carving. It's a bad historical analysis, but the problems, I think, are deeper. Because he says that it proves Halloween's a big satanic ritual. That Christians endorse what those demons stand for by dressing themselves up as the forces of darkness. But then he says that he dressed himself up as John Tetzel, who sold indulgences. So the idea, right. like, <laughs> if dressing up as someone endorses them... <laughs> then he's doing it himself by dressing up as the person who sold indulgences, which supposedly started off the entire beginning right. of Reformation. So the whole thing mm -hmm. just didn't really make a lot of no. sense. No. And it, so it, he's ultimately doing what he accuses Halloween of doing, but just in a much less fun uh, kind of way. So more than that, let's just step back and say a harvest festival is way more pagan than any of the other <laughs> things being discussed here. If you actually study what these pagans celebrated, mm -hmm. harvest festivals were huge. So the idea of like, let's have a parish harvest festival or, you know, a local church harvest festival rather than uh, Halloween because it'll be less pagan could scarcely be more ironic because the pagans aren't out there celebrating Halloween. They weren't out there celebrating Halloween. They were out there celebrating harvest festivals. Right. So celebrating the exact same celebration that pagans celebrated and claiming that it's a less pagan alternative isn't really intelligent, like, logical process. Yeah. So, I mean, like, Samhain is uh, pretty famously the pagan harvest festival that is believed to be at the heart of Halloween. Because it was a fall harvest festival. Right. Now... There's a lot of differences between Samhain and Halloween, and there's a lot of reasons to believe it's not actually the mm -hmm. origin of it. But to have a harvest festival instead is, again, it's much more pagan. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing about Brad Winstead's argument is that his arguments against Halloween, in a nutshell, are you've taken a pagan holiday, you've tried to Christianize it by changing a couple of the elements. So now we're going to... Make a Protestant holiday and try to Christianize it by taking a couple of the elements. So someone could literally apply the same critique he's applying to Halloween to Reformation Day and say, okay, if having a pagan origin is enough to invalidate the whole holiday, yeah. to explicitly say, well, we don't want to leave our kids bored at home on Halloween, so we're going to try to make our version of this what I believe to be a pagan holiday, is of course an invalid. Like the, the whole <laughs> range of argument about this kind of cultural reappropriation 
He's trying to reappropriate what he believes is paganism while criticizing the Christians that came before him from doing allegedly that. Yeah, like wonder what evangelicals years from now will look back and look at pictures of Luther pumpkins or kids dressed up as Calvin and think like, what the heck were we thinking? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or worse, you'll get some group that had been celebrating Reformation Day for 100 years, and they discover, oh no, there's actually a pagan holiday at the root of Reformation Day. We should start a new. (laughs) And so just like the Reformation itself, it ends up being Mm -hmm. this endless cycle of fruitless reforms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. just kind of a a hamster wheel, exactly. So Joe, if you were to sum up these ironies, what would you want listeners to take away from the conversation today about Reformation Day? I would look to 1995 homily given on Reformation Day by a Protestant theologian, uh, Stanley Hauerwas. And he talks about how much he doesn't like uh, to preach on Reformation Day because he doesn't view it as a triumph. And I think it's one of the most insightful takes I've heard of Reformation Day that really gets to the heart of why it's ironic to try to celebrate it. And I think it's a, a point of spiritual meditation for any of our listeners, I'd say particularly any Protestant listeners who, who are maybe thinking, like, why, why is it important that I'm Protestant? What am I Protestant for? He really is asking that question. Here's what he says. He says, Reformation names the the disunity in which we currently stand. We who remain in the Protestant tradition want to say that Reformation was a success. When we make Reformation a success, it only ends up killing us. After all, the very name Protestantism is meant to denote a reform movement of protest within the Church Catholic. When Protestantism becomes an end in itself, which it certainly has, Through the mainstream denominations in America, it becomes anathema. If we no longer have broken hearts at the church's division, then we cannot help but unfaithfully celebrate Reformation Sunday. That's a beautifully harrowing thought from someone coming at it from the Protestant viewpoint. Yeah, Mm. that the one thing Catholics and reform-minded Protestants should be able to agree on is we want to figure out how to be holier personally and how to be a holier church. And the Reformation hitherto, has not succeeded. I mean, it succeeded in fracturing Christian unity, not drawing us deeper into oneness, deeper into truth, deeper into love of Christ. And so Reformation Day should give us pause to say, how can we recover Mm -hmm. that union? Because again, I think it's really important to point out the Gospel of John at the Last Supper, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he says, I pray not only for these, meaning the apostles, but for those who believe in me through their name they may be one as you, Father, are one and I am you. And so it's that notion that the true unity of the church is the hallmark of authentic Christian religion. And it's scandalous that we would have any more than one church. So with that in mind, let's close out today with the prayer, especially keeping in mind the desire for unity within Christ's church. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And then the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more, or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.